0: the general are perhaps easier to talk about. The general skills uh, are going to be things like adaptability uh, and authenticity. I think those are two things that uh, everybody has got to really master.
1: Welcome to the Balancing Act Podcast. I'm Andy Tempty and today we've got a very special guest. Well. All of our guests are very special, but this is a really important one to meet. We've got Paul Smith, a Chief Executive Officer at Warland Court Limited and the former Chief Executive Officer of the CFA Institute joining us. Welcome to the show, Paul.
0: Thank you, Andy. It's great to be here.
1: Yes, thank you. Uh, Just for our listeners, uh, I hold the CFA designation. Uh, Paul also holds the CFA designation. Uh, So our conversation today is going to be a continuation of our series on the reskilling revolution and really this kind of skills versus degrees as signals of workplace competency uh, issue. And, uh, you know, the, the central point of today's conversation is that fact that that you know, Paul and I both hold the CFA uh, credential, and can I have really a portfolio of industry recognized credentials? Uh, and, will is that uh, you know, just as good of or even better than a degree uh, in, in the future world of work? So that's the spoiler alert, if you will, <laughs> for today. But, you know, Paul, before we get started with all our guests, we, we really want you to tell our listeners your story.
0: Well, thank you, Andy. As you know, one, one of the problems with being my age is your story tends to go on for far too long. I <laughs> uh, uh, always... I always struggle to condense it, but I'm English, as you can probably hear. Born in, um, born in London, um, sixty-two years ago now. Uh, I think conventional upbringing, university, studied history at university, which I think surprises uh, a lot of young um, you people and I, nowadays. Um, y- yeah. You
1: and I are aligned in that. Well, I, I was, I was, I started out in history as well. Right. so Thank you.
0: So, uh, but obviously, left university had no idea what to do with a history degree. So, uh, uh, I became a, a, a UK accountant um, first. Worked for Pricewaterhouse for four years, and then moved from there uh, to my first overseas posting. I joined an asset management business in Paris, in France, um, that uh, I worked for as a fund manager for four years. Um, I. All sorts of things happened. I actually was lucky enough to become the managing director of that and around 1988 moved the business back to London, run that very happily for seven years. And that was a sort of a a private wealth management business, but very much in the alternative investment um, uh, world. Um, So accountancy to fund management. Uh, I left there in 95, went out to Asia in uh, 96, and went into banking as really as a a service provider to asset managers, as a a custodian, fund administrator, loan officer really to investment funds and did that very happily for 11 years. Ran that business through until 2004 globally um, when we sold it to HSBC. Part of the lock-in, I was very lucky to have a couple of years in the US working for HSBC. Um, took my money off the table when my handcuffs came off, went back to Hong Kong, set up my own fund management business then, uh, which I ran for uh, semi-successfully for about six years, uh, and eventually sold that to some Chinese interests and then joined CFA uh, Institute in 2012. And as you said in your introduction, uh, ended up running that from 2015 to the end of 2019. Since then, I I inhabit this sort of the world of uh, what's called, I believe, portfolio world, where I do a whole variety of things. I have non-executive directorships. uh, I work pro bono for a few foundations and for some government agencies. uh, And I also look after a number of private equity interests that I've accumulated over the years. So I divide my time between those three activities. Uh, I still live in Hong Kong, uh, although at the moment I'm talking to you from, uh, from England. Um, because of COVID, really, I'm a COVID employee <laughs> from Hong Kong, like so many people are at the moment. But looking forward to going back home. Uh, hopefully the news is slightly more encouraging uh, there. Uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to going back and picking up the threads of my life when this pandemic is finally declared over.
1: Yeah. So can uh can can i, I want to go back to uh this transition from history major yeah. to to accountant um mm-hmm. there you know there are a lot of people uh that you know they, they they walk into the to the liberal arts and uh you know the liberal arts has somehow become a bad word yeah. uh, i i really don't think that uh, that it is it it has a branding issue of course but um you know, if you could just dial in just for a moment on how you got, the how between history major to uh, to accountant. Was there an apprenticeship program that yeah. you went through to get there? Yeah.
0: No, that's a, that's a great question. And yes, exactly that. Um, you, in, in the UK at the time, uh, and in most other countries, there is an apprenticeship program. You go in and do effectively three years indentured servitude to, um, uh, to an accountancy firm, Uh, It's not that bad, in fact, but uh, you do three years, uh, and during that three-year period, you also sit exams every year, Uh, and so the the combination of having the practical skill of actually working a job for three years plus the academic skill of passing the various accountancy stages as you go through that route means that after uh, three years, you you emerge the other end as a fully qualified accountant. that's the route. Every country has slightly different rules, but more or less, that's the way it goes. Except it for the United States. I mean, it, it, the real answer to your question: it was an excellent way of migrating from the liberal arts into the business world because it was a very, it was very similar to being at university. In fact, you joined with a cohort. Uh, there was training. Uh, it was a big company, Coopers, is, is the company yeah. that I, I joined. So they put an awful lot into you as a, a young person, 21-year-old person. They gave you three years of really, really good training. You saw a whole bunch of businesses. So you weren't just confined to financial services, which is where I ended up. Uh, I did dipping of oil tanks. I did uh, supermarkets. I did all sorts of publishing companies, all sorts of different things. And, and uh, exposure to to different facets of businesses as well. So it was, it was a fabulous business training, really. Plus, you 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 had a cohort of people your age who you knocked around with, and and it, it really was a very easy way of joining the workforce and finding your feet. You know, what does anyone know at twenty one? Really, I certainly knew absolutely nothing. So I was uh, uh, I was very grateful for that. Um, introduction to the world of work.
1: Yeah, so two things uh, from that. Number one, uh, what what year was that again? That was, that was
0: 1984. Oh, sorry, okay. 1980. 1980.
1: I joined. Okay, okay. So for our listeners, uh, and uh, you know, our listeners around the world are around the world, uh, but many of them are here in the United States. And the story that you just told. Is not a familiar story here in the United States. Uh, apprenticeship programs are, uh, as you would know from your time at CFA Institute, are they are not the norm uh, here as they as they are in other countries. And so, I just want our listeners to you know hear that story. And that was back in 1980 that uh, that Paul went went through that uh, that journey. Yep. And on the, in this series, we're talking a lot about uh, you know. Oh, these alternative pathways into the world of work and especially working to learn, uh, in lieu of, uh, learning to work, which is the normal model in the United States. You go to college for five or four or five or six years and then ta-da job market. Here I am. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's the those well-defined paths into the workplace, especially the professional, uh, the business professional workplace, uh, that we we've got a lot of work to do. No. And I just want want our listeners to be thinking that this was happening back in 1980. So this is a well-worn path. Folks know how to do it, and you no. know why we're why we're not doing more of it in the United States is kind of a head scratcher. <laughs>
0: It it wasn't even just you as a student that knew it. Obviously, the the other element to it, Andy, is that the companies would go and find you on campus, basically. So there was what we called in the UK a milk round, basically, where companies came to to, to campus to... um, Show you what they did, um, and then obviously to take CVs and to screen you and to give you interviews. So it was a—it was very much a sort of a um, uh, um, uh, you know, sort of a, uh, an old school Tinder dating uh, activity, really, <laughs> in in terms of the way that it operated. And uh, um, it was um, you know, it was I think successful. Like, like all of these things, it it's sort of kind of, and I know you have this problem in the states. The challenge with it is that companies tend to go back to the same universities. Yep. So actually, to, to a certain extent, the die was cast depending on the school that you went to, the university that you went to, because then different companies would go and show themselves to you at that university. The UK has just the problem that you do in the US, that people who go to uh, you know, community colleges and other types of, of, of institution... Um, are not seen by these companies, so an awful lot of talent goes wasted because of because of the, the sort of the rather narrow focus that a lot of businesses have on recruiting from the same the same pools every time.
1: Yeah, yeah. So let's uh, we'll, we'll we'll pause that uh, part of the conversation just briefly. I'd like to. Uh, what I didn't hear from your story was kind of that one accelerant in your career, that one thing that just kind of. Gave you rocket boosters because you know you went from university into the accountancy training program, and then you know all of a sudden by the late eighties, uh, early nineties, you're you're leading and you're yeah. you're doing some really really strong work. Uh, what was that one, if you can put your finger on
0: it? Well, I, yeah, I, I think I can. And I mean, really, it was, uh, and it's very germane to today's world. It was a crisis, um, you know. And the old Rahm Emanuel joke is, is the right one, you know, never waste a crisis, basically. And um, what happened in my life was uh, October 1987, very difficult for people to remember. I mean, these things go in cycles. October 87 was, was uh, a huge stock market crash, started in Wall Street, and right. reverberated around the world. And uh, that crash basically shook the asset management business up that I was working in at the time. Uh, Showed that a lot of the things that we were doing were not fit for purpose. Um, I uh, was fortunate enough to be working at the time with my boss on a variety of initiatives in the sort of the the fund to fund world, the, the outsourcing a lot of what we did to third party managers, particularly alternative investment managers. And it was through that work that I was able to convince uh, the shareholders of the business that that was really the direction that we should take the company in. And um, you know, the crisis had been such a shock to our business that even though I was at the time um, 28 years of age, they didn't really have any hesitation in saying, right, you know, Paul, you go run with it, really. Um, so uh, luck definitely uh, plays a big part in everything, in everybody's life, I think being in the right place at the right time uh, and then having uh, a little bit about you that allows you to shape those crises to your own advantage, to kind of see through them, to to think about what's going to happen next and and how you can maximise your advantage. And, you know, going back to the liberal arts conversation, Andy, I like to think that those are the things that liberal arts students, that sort of forward thinking, being able to see your way through a little bit of chaos and and, and realize that you know life is going to achieve an equilibrium at some point, but it isn't going to be the one that was pre-crisis defined. And, and try and pick your way through that is, is uh, I, I guess was was something of an achievement. I don't want to over-egg that. I was only twenty-eight, and you know <laughs> a lot of it was luck.
1: Yeah, but but you. Uh, you you were you were there uh, and this is about the same time that Carl Swazer and I got together right. and you know i again n- not exactly the same story but uh but the confidence that you must have had the the belief in yourself to to raise your hand and say yeah i i i can i can do this at at 28 is uh, is quite is quite extraordinary and i do believe that that uh that the the liberal arts uh you know some form of broad uh, broad-based knowledge uh training uh helps develop that confidence that to to be able to say yeah i'm i'm gonna raise i'm gonna raise my hand and uh and and step into the breach here
0: yeah i i agree with that i think i think what liberal arts tend to do is to is to teach to keep your head up and to sort of scan the horizon. A little bit that that you know, nothing is ever quite what it seems. Uh, everything is always changing. Um, human agency has a part to play. Uh, I mean, all of those things are are, are sort of um, second nature to to someone who's on that side of things. And that life doesn't work in a straight line. It's not mechanistic. And I guess if you if you have a different type of a mindset, I think chaos and disruption can sometimes affect you more deeply than, um, someone who has a different sort of training and a different, a a, a different perspective on, on change.
1: Right. Right. Well, we, we could uh, get into a half hour conversation on change, but (laughs) yeah. So, but, but, but let's get into the reskilling revolution. So, uh, world economic forum, very large geopolitical organization uh, working with uh, PwC, by the way, on the reskilling revolution. Right. PwC is like front and center in this. Uh, they estimate that up to a billion people need to be reskilled over the next decade, um, and not just upskilled, but reskilled. Uh, you know, as you think back at your experience at CFA Institute, your time at Warland Court, and your previous experience, you know, is this reskilling revolution? This need to focus on uh, skills and reskilling a billion people—is that real, or or hyper, a combination of both?
0: Well, I think, I think inevitably it's a co- it's a combination of both. <laughs> and, what a setup! You know, I guess guys like you and I—we um, remember the world before computers. Um, you know, when I went yes. to work in 1980. There weren't any computers. The first desktop I saw, you know, because I was outside of the US so <laughs> a few years behind, was 1984, was the end of 1984, was the first computer I saw. So I kind of think, you know, isn't reskilling something that we're always doing? We're moving from pens to computers, uh, um, uh, computers to coding skills, perhaps, in terms of the way that, you know, uh, as the PC came in, Coding was accessed. Then you go to artificial intelligence. and Now we're in the middle of the sort of the digital blockchain revolution. Um, change is the only constant in life, as I always try and remind anybody who, who has worked for me. Uh, and um, yeah, you can say that maybe the pace of change is 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 speeding up, but then the pace of change again is always speeding up. That's you know, I always I always think about my grandfather who was born in 1895, uh, and died just after a man landed on the moon. And, uh, you know, you think he went from horse-drawn to um, space travel in his short lifetime, 70-odd years right. of his lifetime. So that's, that's change. Um, but it's, it's, it's constantly accelerating. It's constantly moving. You always have to learn new skills. You and I come from the same sort of background. The only thing that's a constant in life Is that you've got to keep working at it and you've got to keep acquiring new skills because something is always changing. So, yes, I'm sure PwC and and the WEF are right that that a lot of people do need to be retrained over the next uh, decade. But then I would say that they always have had to have done.
1: Right, right. So, um, based on your experiences, what are the most important future skills? that our listeners should be thinking about acquiring to ensure that they remain relevant in the world of work. Now, you're here as, uh, as a preeminent finance uh, professional, but, you know, take that on uh, irrespective of, of industry uh, focus, just kind of across all industries.
0: Yeah. Well, I think I, I think they've obviously fall into the technical, which is to some extent industry specific. And the general, and I think the, the, the general are perhaps easier to talk about. The general skills uh, are going to be things like adaptability uh, and authenticity. I think those are two things that uh, everybody has got to really master. Why authenticity? Because everything that you do is, is now subject to scrutiny and to analysis. And you have to be comfortable with that. And I don't think you can be comfortable with that unless you're authentic. Adaptability, because as we just finished saying, the world uh, is is changing um, at an ever faster pace, uh, and in some surprising ways. I mean, the, the 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 joke is that black swans now seem to be coming along every five or six years, and I do think that's uh, you know that is something that that when one looks back over the last fifteen or twenty years, uh, it's true that there are. Uh, uh, shocking events, whether at an economic or at a macro uh, political uh, uh, level that are, are shaking things up. So I think adaptability, authenticity are absolutely key. Coming back down into um, the skills that, um, that I think everybody needs, uh, computer coding skills. Uh, I think I find it amazing that we're still not teaching that at uh, primary school. Um, blockchain um, um, moving on from there. I think he's going to be with us for a long time. And obviously digital skills, whether that's digital marketing, which I think is going to be um, uh, or is already a game changer, but it would be in those areas that I think the the uh, the the curriculum of the future needs to be driving us much more towards the acquisition of those types of skills rather than um, uh, uh, some of the things that we've Taught in school over the years,
1: right, right. So now, if if you're if let's dial into the world of finance, which both of us grew up in, uh, you know, what's one skill that you would tell everyone in the field uh, to invest time in developing?
0: Um, I think you have to you have to have two to three computer coding languages. So that would be. In- that
1: would, as, a as a finance professional
0: you've got very little chance uh, of even getting into the profession at the pointy end unless you've got coding skills
1: like, wow well you 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 heard it here first because <laughs> because that is not... first
0: because i i think that's been the case for five or six years now uh, yeah but um uh, i i remember being struck and i was in a Careers event, as as you and I so often have been at, with a with the HR uh, head of UBS investment bank, and uh, she said that in no uncertain terms, and that was seven eight years ago now, that they didn't take on any new investment banking trainee unless they had computer coding skills.
1: So, so I was uh, I was a leader back in uh, my undergrad. My my minor uh, as an undergraduate was computer science. Right. So I, you were I was ahead uh, of your time. I was I was way I was way way ahead of my time, but that and I I you know I can attest that that was uh, extraordinarily valuable uh, through throughout. Throughout my uh, career, uh, but you know, if I if I think about the educational landscape today, and the four thousand ish colleges and universities just in the United States, uh, the uh, I may be completely wrong about this, but the average curriculum in finance. At those uh, at those institutions would not put the kind of emphasis on coding skills that you just described. So that was the for for my hey you've heard it here first. That's who that that's where that's uh, that's where that comment was pointed because I I uh, I'm I'm confident that at my local university our local universities here in lacrosse that coding skills are not at the top of the right. list.
0: Well, I, I think also the, the, the great advantage of, of, of coding skills is that you can, and I know we're going to come on to this in our conversation. You can prove that you have them as well. It's a it's a practical yeah. skill. It's a practical skill that you can demonstrate you possess. So yeah. I I think that's the best of all worlds. It's a um, you know it's something that employers want. Uh, you can acquire it, and you can demonstrate that you've got it.
1: Yeah. So we started the conversation talking about your transition from history into accountancy. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, that was from university into major major corporation. The hypothesis that World Economic Forum and I, I also hold is that colleges and universities are just don't have the volume and the throughput uh, to be retraining and rescaling a billion people globally over the next eight, eight to 10 years. So there have to be become alternative pathways into the world of work, at least in the United States, uh, degrees are far too expensive. You alluded to yep. the elitist, uh, nature, if you will, of the existing pathways from colleges, uh, into the world of work that people, uh, of disadvantaged backgrounds are not, uh, you know, able to get into those rushing streams that, that exist. So, uh, is the world of finance, uh, and, and then generally, but is the world of finance ready for alternative pathways in, into, the, into the world of work, those skill portfolios? I here, Here's what I know, and here's what I can do. Uh, please hire me, I, I, but I don't have a degree.
0: Oh. Um, to a very limited extent, I would say. <laughs> Unfortunately, I wish I could be more positive about that. Uh, I mean, the world of finance at the margin does take people uh, who exhibit extraordinary abilities in certain areas that might pay dividends in, say, something like investment management. Uh, And the world of finance certainly talks a lot about alternative career pathways, but I don't think it does uh, a huge amount about it. Uh, You know, going back to your point about Um, students from disadvantaged backgrounds who who don't go to Ivy League colleges or or, uh, the group down from the Ivy League, Um, most uh, uh, mainstream finance institutions still do the first screen on what degree have you done and what university have you been to, basically, in my experience. And and that is... um, I, I agree with your hypothesis, by the way, but uh, my experience is that finance is a very conservative um, profession. Um, and uh, that's kind of it, it's, it's, it struggles to adapt and to change. And I think, you know, we see that in terms of, you know, most, most of the people at the top of um, finance uh, industries are white, middle class males. Basically, yeah. that's, that's pretty much. Um, the same today as it's been uh, over the last thirty or forty years.
1: Yeah, they, you know, and those those white middle class males they they, they uh, scratch their heads and go, well, why why isn't the field more diverse? <laughs> how <laughs> how do we drive our di- di- diversity yeah. I- initiatives? And that's one of the biggest uh, roadblocks that's that's uh, that's standing in the way.
0: Yeah, it's a huge problem. And obviously, we all. Uh, Recruit. We all have a human bias to recruit people who uh, not just look like us, but have the same sort of background that we do. And so yeah. it's a it's a really tough thing to break out of. And uh, over the years, I've become a great believer in quotas. I know that's a very controversial thing to say, but deliberative policies where you you just have to say that you know twenty percent of your graduate intake are going to come from certain backgrounds and from certain schools and, and you're just going to do it. Because I think if you leave it to um, a sort of a, not to chance, but if you leave it to preference, if you like, we're never going to break out of the, um, uh, uh, the, 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 the cycle that we're in at the moment. So um, over the years, I, I'm afraid I've come down to you know you, you affirmative action of one sort or another because I, I, I see no change, no appreciable change in the finance industry.
1: Yeah, so both you and I have accounting and finance backgrounds. I, I actually, Uh, both taught accountancy and was a bookkeeper for for a while, which was loads of fun. Um, (laughs) uh, 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 A a Tandy, uh, a Radio Shack Tandy uh, computer was the first computer. This thing was as big as the desk that I'm (laughs) sitting at right now. But uh, anyway let's get to the credentialing organizations uh, yeah. that that we've been uh, involved in and you are the CEO of uh, CFA Institute how do we get the AICPA and the CFA Institute and, and others to either alter the degree requirements because there if if we if we agree that there is a challenge in terms of uh, diversity and inclusion and alternative pathways into the world of work, those credentialing bodies, uh, CFP, uh, also requires a a degree. Um, How do we, I know I'm going a bit off script here, but how do we influence the future leaders of those organizations to uh, chop their programs up into smaller uh, segments that are more approachable to broader uh, audiences, uh, and uh, and 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 alter those degree requirements so that we do get a more uh, diverse uh, uh, population, and those programs are more approachable.
0: Well, I, I you know, great question. I, I, I think um, uh, I think it will be like most. Change in life. It'll be an internal process from those organizations, but also through external agency as well. And I think, you know, I know CFA is, uh, to go back to your point about chopping the program up, it's struggling with exactly that because a lot of young people today are just saying, we're not going to sit down there and struggle away at level one, two, or three for. Whatever it happens to be, six months of, of study, 9,000 pages of curriculum, yada, yada, yada. We're just not going to do it. So right. to remain relevant to the audience that they're trying to attract, which is mostly, as you know, university students, to remain relevant to that audience, they are having to consider chopping it up. The problem isn't necessarily just internal to the Institute. The problem is also people who have the designation, people like you and I. <laughs> we, are, we are so determined to jealously guard the, the, uh, the credential that we fought so hard to attain that we've kind of pulled the drawbridge up behind us all the time. And mm-hmm. uh, I think, uh, so I think what do we need to do? It's a hearts and minds campaign. Not just within the institute, because actually I think you'll find that the institute is relatively um, uh, psychologically ready for what you're saying. It's more the people who hold the credentials, and then behind that, the universities uh, sorry, the employers who are employing people who have these designations expect that someone has come through a system that they understand. And so um, you know, it's it's a it's a multi piece challenge, I think, to get it done. Um, But um, you know, without starting down that process, we're never going to make the change. And uh, and I think um, uh, I think the biggest change is going to come from students themselves who are just saying, you know, it's got to be online. Obviously, it's got to be modular. Uh, those modules can be acquired over many years. You can't just tell me I've got to do all of this within a certain um, space of time. Um, I need, you know, going back to your old business, I need much more help with the training side of things and the learning support uh, techniques. I want a community uh, of people around me that I can learn with. Uh, I mean, all of these things are happening and happening fast, I think, in the credentialing world. And I hope that they will lead to the thought that you uh, uh, have raised—that uh, ultimately, um, you know, all of those things can be uh, can have a much broader appeal than just people who who have got a university education.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And I think I think finally, I'd say, Andy, that the other thing that needs to happen is that those credentials also have to have a much harder practical edge than they do at the moment. Uh, Absolutely. And I think that's the final piece in this conversation that uh, you know CFA stands accused, and I think to a certain extent rightly accused of being um, too theoretical, perhaps N- not enough practical skills uh, attributed to it. Um, you know, no financial modelling, for instance, and uh, uh, that's a, that's a key uh, skill that people need. No computer coding, all of these things, and obviously it's impossible for one designation to cover the whole waterfront. But I think. For a credential to genuinely become the sort of credential that you're talking about as a university replacement, it has to be thought about less as an academic discipline and more as a practical uh, discipline. And uh, and I think that's perhaps the biggest piece of rethinking that uh, organizations like CFP, CFA perhaps need to go through.
1: Yeah. So I I just like to put in a plug there. You know, there will be uh, charter holders that are that listen to this uh, show and just put in a plug for folks. Uh, like Paul and I, who have been there, done that, and uh, may feel protective of the the pain and the struggle that we went through, and we we want we want uh, future employees to and charter holders to go through the same kind of hell that uh, that we went through. Uh, but you know, let let's change that conversation, and let's be. Uh, leaders in 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 that conversation that uh, that that change is coming uh, the future isn't going to look exactly like the past we ha- we do have in the field of finance a very large challenge with accessibility uh, especially from individuals from uh, more challenging uh, backgrounds uh, it is far too white far too male and uh, and the only way that we make change is to make changes to this to the status quo, so
0: yeah. um, I, I think that's absolutely right. It's well, well said, and I think you know, as you know, charter holders feel that that it's it, it getting the charter is as much about a test of character mm-hmm. as it is about a test of practical ability or even theoretical ability. And so, and, and that's true to an extent, and that's a valuable part of anyone who has got the charter. But what we have to say is that the primary Goal of getting the charger is to show that you can actually look after other people's money successfully, and that's a practical task. Um, let's test those other elements of it: your your resilience, your capacity for hard work. Um, all of those things can be tested in a different fashion. Your ability to work under pressure and all of those things can can be tested elsewhere. Um, the primary goal of the charter is to deliver um, uh, job-ready investment professionals, and I think that's that's the connecting thought, really, with 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 your comments. Eddie. Yes,
1: experiential is the future. So we're coming up on the, our, our showtime here. Uh, I, I've got one more question for you. Uh, you. know, There'll be finance and investments professionals uh, listening to this and prospective uh, finance professionals. What's one piece of advice that you haven't already given uh, to someone who's just entering the field to help them find their accelerant and their rocket
0: boosters? I, what I always, I always, I hate that question because it's difficult <laughs> to answer. But, but the way I always try to do it is, is to say to people that that you know it's not where you start that counts; it's where you finish. And um, life is an increasingly long race. God willing, that you're you're you'll be in the world of work. I know most of us want to be on the beach by the time we're 30 sipping mai tais and, um, and and having a good time but the reality is you go to work as I did at the age of 20 and at the age of 62 I'm still I'm still swinging the bat so uh, you know it's a long career and um, I'm looking forward to another 10 to 15 years uh, plying it so so you know there's no rush take your time remember that over the next 50 years the world of work is going to change dramatically. You'll be telling the stories that I'm telling now. That you know, you, 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 I came in before computers, and now we live in blockchain and artificial intelligence and all of those things. I cannot imagine what the world of work is going to look like in 50 years' time. I do know it's going to be hugely different to today. So remember, you've got to get going. So start somewhere. But if you work hard and you keep yourself open to new learnings at every stage of your career, you'll finish in a place that you wouldn't have believed you were capable of. And I think that's the most important lesson and piece of advice that I always give young people is, is don't get ahead of your skis, you know, remember that it's an awfully long race and, um, you know, start as a junior, learn your craft, work your way up, keep learning, and you'll
1: be fine. Awesome. Awesome advice. Well, Paul, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, uh, my usual outro. I'm Andy Tempty. This is the Balancing Act podcast. Uh, you can find all things uh, uh, on andrewtempty.com. You can find the podcast on your favorite uh, podcasting services. We've got the Saturday Morning Muse. I've got the, the book Balancing Act. And uh, Paul, thank you again so much for being here. Have a great day.
0: Great pleasure, Andy.